This is the podcast for Centerpoint Church located in Hendersonville, Tennessee. My name's Jason, and we're on this series called You're Not Good Enough. How's that for motivation? But the reality is, is that we aren't, as human beings, good enough. And that's not what God wants for us. We're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks at the book of Galatians. I'm excited for us to dive deep in the scripture. Let's jump in. Man, all right, we are on week two of this series called You're Not Good Enough. If it's your first time here, you're like, bro, what kind of sermon series is that? Don't worry. I've got an even weirder subtitle for my message. So last week, and we'll recap in a moment, was called the Jesus Plus Gospel. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. For those of you that need time to look in the table of contents at the front of your Bible for where Galatians is, don't worry. I got to do that sometimes too. This week, the sermon title is Rocky versus Drago, Peter versus Paul. And if you're like, that's the weirdest sermon title I've ever heard, you haven't been going here for very long. Rocky versus Drago, Peter versus Paul, and we're on the book of Galatians, and the series is called You're Not Good Enough. And I don't mean that to patronize you. I don't mean that to put you down. I want to let you know that that's the theme of the book of Galatians, is that you and I will never be good enough to earn grace. And that's why Jesus came. And so last week we talked about what was going on historically in the book of Galatians. You have a couple of different ways to take that content in to catch up. We stream these things most of the time on Facebook. We're also on YouTube. You can subscribe to our podcast. We've got people, actually our podcast numbers are the biggest. It's crazy. People in non-English speaking countries download our podcast every week. I don't know if they speak English or if they did it by accident, but I will take those numbers. There's a book in the Bible called Numbers, so I'll take it too. Uh, But people listen to us all over the world. But I'll give you a quick recap. So we have... Paul, who's writing a letter to the church of Galatia, and he planted that, that, those network of churches during his first missionary journey. He goes back to Jerusalem, and while he's there, he starts to hear word that some false teachers came in, and they were spreading this perverted gospel of what you need for Christianity, what you need for salvation is Jesus plus bits and pieces of the law. They're Christian Jews that came in and started giving that teaching. And Paul gets angry because they fall for it hook, line, and sinker. And he's like, no, 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 no. The Jesus plus gospel is a false gospel. Anything that says you need Jesus plus anything else for salvation is simply not true. And he gets angry and he defends it. And he's trying to recorrect them. And so that's what we're going to be talking about even more today and we're going to be in chapter 2. And, and what I want to focus on today is something that I've actually personally never heard a preacher preach on before. And it's this confrontation between Peter and Paul. Now, I don't know about you, Dale, but if you told me that Peter and Paul were going to have a confrontation and you put that bad boy on pay-per-view, I want to see that show. And, and that, that's like headline WrestleMania type of stuff here. And, and it's right here in chapter 2, and I've read through Galatians many times, and I kind of missed it. And so I want us to hover over that today. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to know ahead of time. So chapter 2 starts off with Paul defending his resume. Like he's telling everybody, hey, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that 
guy. Here's some things you should know about my resume just to let you know why I have the authority in this situation. And that's what he does. And then he tells them about a time where he confronted Peter. Now, this is Peter post-Pentecost. So this isn't the gospel Peter who's cussing out little girls and cutting guys' ears off. This is the Holy Spirit-filled Peter who's now very influential in the church. But he gets sucked into the trap that sometimes you and I in today's church can fall for. And that's what we're going to talk about. So it's Peter being confronted by Paul. Now you see the word Cephas there. Here's the part you got to understand. Cephas. Cephas is actually the Aramaic term for rock, which is the new name that Peter is given. So Peter's not even actually his name. Some of you are like, wait, what? They never taught me this in vacation Bible school. Peter is Greek. Cephas is Aramaic. They're synonyms. That's how guys can have multiple names in scripture. His real name is Simon, son of Jonah. So you'll see sometimes, depending upon the audience, different terms will be used for different purposes. So if you see Cephas, just know that's Peter. Yes, that's the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter. And they're about to face off. And so as I was kind of putting the final touches on this message, I was thinking about like, what are some of the greatest showdowns, confrontations, face-offs I've ever seen in my life? And if you paid attention to the subtitle and you were lucky enough to grow up in the 80s, and I mean you are lucky enough, you may recognize this, Rocky versus Ivan Drago. Like that right there defined a year of my childhood when Ivan's like, I beat all men. If he dies, he dies. I will be champion. That was pretty good. <laughs> I think so. Like, that's an epic showdown. I wanted to see what was going to happen. I didn't even go for when Hulk Hogan was in it. That's, that's too easy. But, but Ivan Drago, my goodness. This dude's like 70 and can still beat me up in real life, just so you know. Does anybody know Ivan Drago's real name, like the actor? If you know it and you're confident, say it. If you just yelled that out, we need to be friends. I'll give you my real email address. Not the one on the website. <laughs> There's another one that's really important to me. Put this up. This also defined my childhood. I'm talking Danny LaRusso versus Johnny Lawrence. Raise your hand if you know what happens about 20 seconds after this picture right here. Raise your hand. We need to be friends. Was it a legal kick? Was it an illegal kick? I don't know. It depends on who you ask. You Miyagi-Do, you Cobra Kai. I don't know. Let's pull the audience. If you're Miyagi-Do, Joe, raise your hand. If you're Cobra Kai, raise your hand. If your hand's up, you probably have a tattoo and, and ride a motorcycle, and maybe you're a Raiders fan. I don't know. I'm Miyagi-Do, just for the record. Not a, dude, a lot of dudes in Cobra Kai that look like me. Believe it or not, that part's not even in my notes. You're welcome. But... <laughs> But I want to talk for a moment, because I'm a history guy, about what I think one of the most epic duels was in early American history. Calm down, Jen. It's not Hamilton versus Burr. That was too easy. Calm down. It's a different duel. Now, here's the part that's interesting, Marshall, is that at the time, it was considered a gentleman's way of solving an argument. Two dudes with guns shooting at each other. And it wasn't illegal. It's a justifiable homicide. The women were smarter. At least they'd gather around the well and just talk trash about each other. But the guys, <laughs> you guys don't do that anymore. But the guys would have this duel. Now, 
What is a duel? There were some rules, and then there were some unwritten rules. And some of the unwritten rules were, we're going to talk a tough game, but when it comes time to shoot each other, we're both going to miss so that we can walk away and still act tough. But some guys didn't abide by those rules, and those are the duels that you know of. And this one's no different. This is uh, Andrew Jackson, Tennessee's own. And this is Charles Dickinson, not Charles Dickens, very different, Charles Dickinson. And Charles Dickinson is an attorney. And the rule and the moral of this story is if you're an attorney, you deserve to get shot in a duel. <laughs> if there's any attorneys in here, I'm so sorry. Cash their check quickly, quickly. This guy made two mistakes with Andrew Jackson. One, he called him a liar and a cheater. And two, he talked trash about his woman. Mm-mm-mm. The first one, he called him a liar because he bet on a horse race and he said he cheated on the bet. Now, some people say he manipulated his, what he, the horse he was voting on, betting on. Sorry, I'm not much of a gambler because I'm terrible at it. But, but then some people had said, and we don't actually know if any of it's true, that he actually fed something to the horse that was favored to win before the race, which caused it to be lethargic and not win. But either way, Charles Dickinson publicly called Andrew Jackson a cheat and a liar. And that wasn't the worst of it. May 30th, 1806, they have a duel. And Charles Dickinson said that Andrew Jackson's wife, Rachel, was a polygamist. Now, for those of you who don't know what that word means, I don't either. But I read on the very, very reliable source called Wikipedia that a polygamist, as a joke, a polygamist is when you're married to multiple people. And here's the crazy part, Jamie, is that it was actually sort of true because she had never officially filed the paperwork from her ex-husband, and now she's married to Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson challenges Charles to a duel. They take their steps they turn around, Charles Dickinson fires. Now, again, I told you the unwritten rule was most people are supposed to shoot in the air or down. Guns weren't super accurate back then. But Charles Dickinson, he, he shoots Andrew Jackson. It, this is all historically now. Hits him in the chest bone, and it shoots off and shatters two of his ribs. Now, here's the crazy part. His facial expression never changed. He just took it like a man. And then he holds the gun up, and Charles dies from complications of the shot. Now, that's pretty manly. I'd like to tell you that I'm that tough. Don't know why you're laughing. One time, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I, we were moving a mattress upstairs, and we're sliding it on the ground, because she's not strong enough to pick up her end. And she pushes... And it pulls back my big toenail. And it starts to bleed. I'd like to tell you that my facial expression did not change. I'd like to tell you that I took it like a man. Let's move on to the next spot of this sermon. And it's this idea of Peter versus Paul. Now, Paul in his letter, is going to remind the Galatians of a confrontation that he once had with Peter. And it's pretty contentious. As promised, we're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, 
time out. I know I only got through two words. Uh, let's, let's pull the audience for a moment. I want to see how well you were paying attention. Is Cephas the term for Simon in Greek or Aramaic? Say it out loud if you got confidence. You're a lot smarter than the first service because there were all kinds of wrong answers. One person yelled, neither. I was like, what? <laughs> One person said, see all of the above. But you got it right, those of you that were bold enough to talk. Okay, here we go. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, underline that phrase, we're going to come back to that. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid, underline that, of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Underline that. That's the worst name for a gang of all time. If you're a Harley rider, don't get that stitched on the back of your jean jacket and ask people to join your bike gang. What are you called? Hell's Angels. What about you? We're the circumcision group. So inappropriate. Inappropriate that you laughed at it. Verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I say that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I, when I saw that they weren't, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. A strange passage of scripture, but let's break this down for a moment because I think this is going to be very telling as to what the problem was that Peter was doing, why Paul addressed it, and how you and I can learn and apply this to our lives today. So that first phrase I had you underline, they came from James. It's, it's a weird phrase, and historians and theologians have that really narrowed down to two possible things. The first one is, is that maybe they were disciples of James. This is James, Jesus's half-brother. We say his half-brother because he was the biological son of Joseph and Mary, and Jesus was just the, 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 the son of Mary and God the Father. And so we call that his half-brother. This is James who would later on write the book of James. This is James who was very influential in the area of Jerusalem. So they say that these people were either disciples of James or they were from Jerusalem and from that area. And that's why they say they came from James. Uh, Gerald McCormick right here is from Westmoreland. So if so, I'm sorry about that. But if somebody came here from Westmoreland, they probably look like Gerald. They probably sound like Gerald. And if somebody came in that was heavily influenced by Gerald or Westmoreland, which he's related to three-fourths of the town, then they would say, well, they came from Gerald. Is there anybody in the house from Westmoreland that would say that they're proud that they came from Gerald? Not even your own daughter raised her hand, and that takes a whole new context. Let's move on. So inappropriate. The, the, the part here that's interesting is Peter is getting chastised by Paul, and it's not because he's eating with Gentiles. So Gentiles is a Bible word for non-Jews. Here's why he's getting chastised. Because Peter had no problem stripping away a lot of the qualifications that used to be necessary for being a Jew. Things like dietary restrictions. In fact, Peter's the one that first championed that now all food is clean. And he had no problem doing that. He had no problem stripping away what he had been taught about circumcision, about the Sabbath, about the law, about all of those things. And here he is, and he's sitting here eating with the Gentiles. Now, eating back then, if you're familiar at all, was a very strong social statement. 
that you were equals, that you were good, that they were worthy of your time. That's why the Pharisees got so mad when Jesus ate with tax collectors. And so he's sitting here saying, you were eating with them. And then the men that came from James showed up, which means Jewish Christians. And he says, and at that point, you faded away. And then he says, the men from the circumcision group showed up, which are the Judaizers, is what we talked about last week. And he says, yet Peter, when they started telling about the Jesus plus gospel, you didn't say anything. You're a leader in this area. You're looked upon with influence. People are watching what you do. Yet when someone came in with the false doctrine of Jesus plus, you said nothing. And because of your inaction, now even Barnabas is being led astray. What does that have to do with you and I? A lot. What we're seeing right now permeate throughout our culture is this false doctrine. It's people preaching things that are not of the word, but the false teachers are standing up and presenting it as if it is. And the church is doing very little about it. And what we're allowing to happen is what the word of God has warned us about, is saying even the very elect will be deceived. Now, why do we not do much about it? Why are we not defending it with as much fervor as Paul had? I think it's probably two reasons, and both of them are a little bit uncomfortable, and both of them are a little stretching, but I'm not here to win your approval. Here's the truth, is I think that a lot of us, we just don't know our Bible that well to defend it. So what if they say something back and I don't know how to respond? Study. Put in the time. If you're basing your eternity on it, you should probably know a little bit about it. Same with me. The other thing is I think that we are uh, afraid of being canceled, of being attacked by the woke, and we're willing to elevate being liked and accepted by people over the truth of defending the word of God. Now, now, now none of this happened to the world. It was within the church. So what Paul is so uh, defending so much with so much passion is what he would write in the next chapter, 328, which you should be familiar with. It's, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We talked about this with Hope for a Slave a couple of weeks ago. This idea that because Jesus came and died on the cross, we now don't have anything that separates you and I. No socioeconomic status can separate us and make one of us more valuable to Jesus than the other. Not gender, not past, not present. We are all one. But what happened is, when the Judaizers came in and started saying something different than that, Peter faded back. It's kind of like that Homer Simpson meme where he like goes backwards into the shrubs. It's kind of what Peter did. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You're a leader. No, 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 no. You have influence. Fathers, husbands, are we allowing our children to receive a false doctrine from the, their classmates at school? And we're doing nothing about it. We're fading into the shrubs. Oof, stretching, isn't it? 
I want you to hear, I want to skip to chapter five for just a split second because I want you to hear how much passion Paul had. I want you to hear how angry he is with these Judaizers and just full disclosure, he's about to say something that's a little bit crass. It's a little bit gross. It's a little bit too extreme. And it's a little bit where you're like, oh, the Bible isn't PG all the time. Sometimes it's PG-13. Now I want you to hear this. This is how angry he was at this. He's talking to the church of Galatia and he's saying, you were running a good race, past tense. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. You allowed a little bit to influence and infiltrate it all. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into this confusion, whoever it may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, that means men and women within the church, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished, as for those agitators, he's talking about the circumcision group, and listen to this, this is the part. He says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This is what he's saying right here. He's saying if, if, if circumcision is so important to them and that's what they're championing, then, championing then, then I wish they would have just gone all the way and cut the whole thing off. That's what he's saying right here. That's how angry he is. And he's saying, they'll, they'll stand before God one day and they will pay the price for it. Because Paul recognized that when men and women come in and they give you a false, ver false version of the gospel and pervert it, it's up to the men and women of the church to stand up against it and say, no, no, no. But we want people to like us. As we talked about last week, Paul says that we can either have the approval of man or the approval of God, but we can't have both. Verse 15, back in chapter two, by the way, verse 15. We'll stay there for the remainder of our time. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By law, we mean the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We mean what was established for the Jews at the beginning. And Paul is saying, you are missing what the whole point of the law was. I want you to look over here at Dan's very expensive electric guitar. I see you back there, Dan. I'm going to pick this up right now and just, I have no idea. No, I, I, I am. I'm going to pick it up and then, man, I've always wanted to smash a guitar on stage after a concert. Like, I'm a drummer. We just sit back here and no one ever knows who the drummer is, but the guitarist could just, that's what I'm going to do in just a moment. I hope that's okay. Wow. I want you to think about this electric guitar for just a second that's laying down over here. If I picked up this electric guitar and it was not plugged in, I could stand up here and play for you. And full disclosure, I know a couple of power chords. I grew up in the punk rock era, all right? All you gotta know is three of them and you can write about any punk rock song. I know most of them. And I could stand up here and without it being plugged into an amp, it's not loud enough for you to hear that I clearly don't know how to play guitar. You won't hear all the little nuances of my, my ineptitude by which, you know, oh, I didn't mute that string. Oh, you're playing a, a B flat instead of an A minor. 
Okay, all right, yes, yes, that's correct. And, and, and you wouldn't know any of those things. But the moment that I plugged it into an amplifier, now you would be able to see that I clearly don't know how to play guitar. You would hear every little detail of where I messed up. That is the purpose of the law. The law was the amplifier to show man that you're not good enough. So the law is going to show you that you're not good enough. So that one day when the Messiah comes and dies on the cross for your sins, you don't have to be. And that you could recognize it. I told you last week that uh, Romans and Galatians are kind of the same. I don't know why I'm doing that. They're not in conflict. They're congruent. They, they're kind of the same. Like Galatians is like a mini version of Romans. But a lot of the same themes go throughout there. By the way, side note, not in the notes. If you want to know what could potentially face the destruction of the United States of America, go read Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's like a blueprint for our destruction. And we're falling right into it. Side note. I want you to hear Romans 3.20 for a moment. Just one verse, Romans 3.20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. See, the law is there to show you that you're not good enough. If there was no law, we would never know. So Paul is telling Peter, you, why would you go back to that? You don't want to amplify the law. You don't want that. You, because you're religious and super good and your sins are inside instead of outside, you may think you want the law, but trust me, you don't want the law. He's basically talking about the doctrine of depravity of man, that, that we are innately unrighteous, which is why Jesus had to come. All right, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 17. But if... In seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? He says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what was destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And this is a very famous verse you probably have heard of, but now you have the historical context behind it. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Oh, some of you church people need to hear this today. Some of you people that grew up in a very traditional, legalistic religion beat on top of your head week after week after week need to hear this today. I've got three quick points, but the first point is for you who are in this room that have experienced church hurt due to legalism. And it's probably more of you in here than you would realize. It's called justifi justification by faith. Which means you and I are unrighteous and we are made righteous by the free gift of God. See, here's what Peter fell into and had a difficult time with. No knock on him. 
For the first century Jewish Christians, it was difficult for them because since the day they were born, they were, they, they were programmed with this idea of the law, of all the things you had to keep up, all the things you had to do, all the different regulations, rules, traditions, feasts, and they were just programmed from a young age. And then all of a sudden, this Messiah from Nazareth comes and he dies on the cross for our sin and he completes the law. And now we don't have to go there anymore. But every time there was something that would come up, their brain would go straight back to what they knew for a long time. And that's what Peter fell into. And Paul is telling him that that's unnecessary now. So here's what you're going to have to face. Is you're going to have to reprogram your mind what you've been beat into your head of legalism and man-made institutions. It doesn't mean that they are bad, but it's the Jesus plus gospel. What does that look like, real practical? It was easy for the Gentiles to accept salvation. They had no problem with it. You want to know why? They never had a history with the law. Their salvation came after the law. And so for those of you that are new to church or new to this thing that we call Christianity, which is walking with Jesus, his, his, your Lord and Savior, like if that's new to you within the last couple of years, then you're like the Gentiles, man. Grace is, is easy. I love it. There's no problem with it. I'll take it. Can I tell you this? New people at this church never complain about anything. New people don't come into this church and say, I cannot believe that you allow coffee in the sanctuary of God. Full disclosure, this is not a sanctuary. It's an auditorium with carpet and drywall. It's not the tabernacle. It's not the temple. If you think we need to go back to that, then Christ died for nothing. I cannot believe that a preacher would stand up there in skinny jeans. Why is he not wearing a suit and tie? Oh, you're right. I forgot. That's in scripture. Ethan, happy birthday. That's in scripture. That the preacher has to wear a tie is First Opinions chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to say that again because it was funnier than you're laughing. It was First Opinions chapter 2, verse 13, that the preacher has to do that. I'm going to keep repeating it until you laugh harder. Do we got that laugh track queued up? There it is. So I'm here on a mission today. And some of your faces that I know have experienced church hurt, and I know that you've had small-time church. I shouldn't say small-time church. Let me rephrase that that you've had man-made traditions used as weapons against you and there's still wounds, you need to listen to what this message is today. And it's time to move past it because you're not in that anymore. The same way that Peter had to move past the Jewish tradition saying, no, 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 that's not how it is. This is how it is. Gentiles had no problem receiving that salvation. They had no problem understanding that it was just free, that grace was free, and that they would never be good enough. But number two, if we ever become too churchy to sit at the table with sinners, we are missing the heart of Jesus. If we ever become too churchy to sit at the table of sinners, then we are missing the heart of Jesus. Can I let you in on a little secret? It's rhetorical. I have a microphone. Most of the time, it's new people that are bringing new people to church. It's not the established people. It's the new people. Why? Because they're excited about it. They want to talk about it. 
us, for some of us, it's difficult because we don't want to think about that part because that part was difficult. That part was painful. And then the last thing is this. Spiritual life is found through death. I'm going to say it again because we got to understand this part. Spiritual life is found through death. You've heard me say this before probably, but I'm going to repeat it until I no longer have breath in my lungs. You and I are crucified with Christ. This whole thing is built around this idea that we're not good enough and that's why Jesus had to come to die for our sins. We don't even try to hide it. Look what's on the cover of your Bible, an instrument of death, the cross for crucifixion. Let me repeat verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I'm going to let some of you off the hook. Some of you are going to walk out of here freed of a lot of things that's been put on you for a long time. You'll never be good enough to be made righteous on your own. So stop trying. If righteousness could be gained by church attendance, then Christ died for nothing. Aren't you glad for those of you especially who missed last week? Mm-hmm. If writing a tithe check that was big enough to impress people gained righteousness, then Christ died for nothing. If reading your Bible long enough and praying loud enough and fasting for days made you righteous by itself, then Christ died for nothing. But how many of us walk around and we feel this pressure as if our actions are going to justify our salvation? Now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. But I want to remind you that how you act, how you are right now, how you have been, and how you're going to be tomorrow will not move the dial for how much God loves you. You can't work hard enough for him to love you more. And you can't mess up so big that he loves you less. Now, I want to speak for a second to the people who have children who are maybe living wayward lifestyles right now, or grandchildren, or nieces, or nephews. Let me just ask you this. This will give you some clarification on how God views us. Children do some pretty stupid things sometimes. But my child on her worst day and my child on her best day does not affect how much I love her. And if me being evil feels that strongly about my child, how much more does God love his children? We know this. Let's remind ourselves of that. I want to end it with this. The band can come up. Because of the death of Christ, I don't have to be good enough and neither do you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So put to death the idea that you have to be good enough for God to love you. So put to death the idea that your actions will move the needle on his love for you. I think that Satan uses this idea that we have to constantly be earning it and working at it to stop husbands from really progressing as godly leaders of their household because we feel like our actions have to justify that we're the leader of our home. And when we mess up, and you will, then we think, well, I can't do that because I'm unworthy. I'm sorry. When did this become about you being worthy? As Paul said, if it was a matter of you and I being worthy, then Christ died for nothing. 
you are good enough, then Christ died for nothing. Would you stand with me?